0: Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 9, 1 Kings chapters 5 and 6. Well, we left off at verse 6 of 1 Kings 5 last time, the mention of an exorbitant number of horses belonging to King Solomon's monarchy being the subject. Now in the preceding passages we read of an equally exorbitant amount of food that the king's large and growing government required and which the common folk of Israel had to supply in the form of a levy. Well, King Shlomo is as much businessman as king. And he uses that ability to make the kingdom of Israel the envy of the world. And not long after being crowned, he ran his country as a CEO, runs a corporation, with economics as the overriding priority. But at this earlier point in his career, it seemed as though the spiritual man within him held the reins of his life as he went about ordering his kingdom in a way that made the lives of his citizens more prosperous and peaceful than they had ever known. Even if the burdens of centralized government and the high national aspirations of their king seemed to be putting an ever-growing weight upon their shoulders. For the moment, Shlomo seemed to be carefully navigating along that razor's edge that balances the kind of earthly wisdom that brings fame and wealth with the higher kind that exalts a nation in God's eyes. Now, thus, in his early reign, Solomon wrote down timeless words of wisdom and advice that surely. Honestly, represented his, his righteous views on matters that he faced that we all must deal with on a day-to-day basis. In Proverbs 3 God's anointed king who was promised unmatched divine wisdom and given long life as a conditional gift for obeying God's commandments he says this in Proverbs three thirteen through eighteen, happy is the person who finds wisdom. The person who acquires understanding for her profit exceeds that of silver, gaining her is better than gold, she's more precious than pearls. Nothing you want can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand, riches and honor in her left. Her ways are pleasant ways. All of her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who grasp her. Whoever holds fast to her will be made happy. Now as true and profound as his statement is, already in chapter 5 we are seeing ominous signs that the evil inclination remained alive and well, within Shlomo. So, much like his father, he loved God with all of his heart on the one hand, and inexplicably on the other hand, he could not resist the temptations that the world offered him. I think perhaps no one has summed up Solomon's problem, my problem, your problem, better than the Apostle Paul when it comes to that maddening dilemma of our knowing and loving God and yet inevitably at times doing what we know is wicked and destructive and harmful even shameful. That Paul speaks of that in Romans 7, 14-24. Don't go there, I'm just going to read it for you. Paul says this, For we know that the Torah is of the Spirit. But as for me, I'm bound to the old nature, sold sold to sin as a slave. I don't understand my own behavior. I don't do what I want to do. Instead, I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I'm doing what I don't want to do, I'm agreeing that the Torah is good But now it's no longer the real me doing it, but the sin that's housed inside of me. For I know there is nothing good housed inside of me that is inside my old nature. I can want what's good, but I can't do it. For I don't do the good I want. Instead, the evil that I don't want what I do. But if I'm doing what the real me doesn't want, it's no longer the real me doing it, but the sin housed inside of me. So I find it to be the rule, a kind of perverse Torah, that although I want to do what is good, evil's right there with me. For in my inner self, I completely agree with God's Torah. But in my various parts, I see a different Torah. One that battles with the Torah in my mind makes me a prisoner of sin's sins Torah which is operating in all my various parts. What a miserable creature I am! Who is going to rescue me from this body bound for death? As much as God had given to Solomon he didn't have what even the poorest, weakest, most oppressed believer has today to help him Christ let's reread a portion of 1st Kings chapter 5 and let me remind you that if you're following along with a Bible that's based on the Greek Septuagint what I'm about to read is going to be in your Bibles in chapter 4 starting in verse 29 So if you have a complete Jewish Bible or one that's based on the Hebrew Scriptures, go to 1 Kings chapter 5 and we're going to start at verse 9. 1 Kings chapter 5, starting at verse 9. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, that's page 372. God gave Shlomo exceptional wisdom and understanding, as well as a heart as vast as the sandy beach by the sea. Shlomo's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of the people from the east, and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than everyone, wiser than Etan the Ezrahi, wiser than Haman, Kalcol and Darda the sons of Machol, and so that his fame spread to all the surrounding nations. He composed 3,000 proverbs, 1,005 songs. He could discuss trees from the cedar in the Lebanon to the hyssop growing out from the wall. He could discuss wild animals, poultry, reptiles, fish. People from all nations came to hear the wisdom of Shlomo, including kings from all over the earth who had heard of his wisdom. Hiram, King of Zor sent his servants to Shlomo because he had heard that they had anointed him king in his father's place and Hiram had always loved David. Shlomo returned this message to Hiram. You know that David my father wasn't able to build a house for the name of Adonai his God because of the wars that beset him from every side until Adonai put his enemies under the soles of my feet. But now Adonai my God has given me rest on every side. There's neither adversary nor calamity. So now I intend to build a house for the name of Adonai my God and keeping with Adonai I said to David my father your son whom I will put on your throne in your place will be the one to build the house for my name. Therefore order your people to cut down cedar trees from the Lebanon for me. My servants will be with your servants. I will pay your servants according to everything you say for you know that we have no one among us as skilled in filling trees as the Sidonim. And when Hiram heard Shlomo's message, he was very happy. And he said, Blessed be Adonai today who has given David a wise son to rule this great people. And then Hiram sent Shlomo this message. I have heard the message you sent me. I will do everything you want concerning cedar logs and cypress logs. My servants will bring them down from the Lebanon to the sea. I will make them into rafts to go by sea to whatever place you tell me and will have them broken up there and you will receive them. You will compensate me by providing food for my household. So Hiram gave Shlomo all the cedar logs and cypress logs that he wanted and Shlomo gave Hiram 100,000 bushels of wheat as food for his household and 1,000 gallons of oil from pressed olives. This is what Shlomo gave Hiram each year. And Adonai gave Shlomo wisdom as he had promised him. And there was peace between Hiram and Shlomo. The two of them formed an alliance together. Now King Shlomo conscripted 30,000 men from all Israel for forced labor. He sent them to Lebanon in monthly relays of 10,000. They'd stay a month in Lebanon and two months at home. Ram was in charge of the forced labor. Shlomo had 70,000 men to carry loads, another 80,000 stone cutters in the hills, besides Shlomo's 3,300 supervisors who were in charge of the people doing the work. The king gave orders and they carried quarried large stones, expensive stones, to lay the foundation of the house with cut stone. Shlomo's and Hiram's builders, along with the men from Gibal, worked. The stones and prepared the timber and stones for building the house. Well, the first words of verse 9 are that God gave Shlomo exceptional wisdom and understanding as well as a vast heart. Now, let's look at the Hebrew words used here to put a finer point on what the intent of this passage is because it goes a long way toward helping us to understand just who this famous man was. But it also helps us to better grasp something very important for us. What wisdom is as it's presented to us in the Bible. The English word wisdom is in Hebrew chokmah. Chokmah. Understanding is tabuna. And vast heart is rochab leib. Now, chokhmah indeed means wisdom. But it means it more in the sense of administrative acumen, good decision making, shrewdness, even prudence. In other words, it's a practical type of wisdom that we all hope to have, but leaders in particular require it. Now we're going to appropriate this wisdom from one of two sources either as a gift from the Lord or from our own evil inclinations that lead us to deal with the world and all of our carnality. There is no separate Hebrew word for godly wisdom as opposed to carnal wisdom. Chokmah covers both. And it's within the context that we must discern the lower and the higher kinds. Tabunah means understanding. But it also means it in the sense of an ability to apply the chokmah, the wisdom, to any given situation. Understanding is what a teacher has if they're a good teacher. And understanding also leads to using what is known from a variety of disciplines. Rochab Leib, translated literally, means vast heart. But in modern Western thought and vocabulary, it means expansive mind. I'm going to remind you again that in the Bible, heart means mind. Because from the earliest to the latest Bible times, it was believed by all known cultures that the heart organ was where conscious thought took place. So the idea within the incorporation of these three attributes of Chokmah, Tabunah, and Rochab Leib to describe Shlomo is that he explored and he understood a wide variety of knowledge. He wasn't a specialist. Rather, he was a brilliant generalist who had great skills and interest in many subjects and, and disciplines. He is what we today might call a true renaissance man. Now, that the term chokmah is a general term used throughout the Bible for most any kind of wisdom, spirit-filled or earthly, is immediately validated in verse 10 of Because we're told that Solomon had greater chokmah, wisdom, than the children of the East had chokmah, or even Egypt had chokmah. What kind of wisdom did Egypt and the children of the East possess? It was of two different kinds. The children of the East possessed cunning and shrewdness. It's the kind that we usually assign to oriental traders and merchants. From this point forward in the Bible, as a matter of fact, you can generally take any mention of the children of the East to be Ishmaelites, Arabs. As for the Egyptians, they were known for their technology for their engineering and their science. They were early intellectuals who excelled in advanced farming, animal breeding techniques, designing and building enormous structures, medicine. They advanced the art of writing and of military armaments. It is the kind of wisdom that today we assign to the Western cultures. So it's within the context both of shrewdness in business and politics and intellectualism that Solomon is being praised. And the thing that's so critical for us to see is that although Solomon's great capacity for understanding and knowledge came from Jehovah, that doesn't mean that Solomon always used it in ways that reflected Jehovah's will. Such is the challenge that faces all who call Yehovah Father. Just because, as redeemed people, we are given given spiritual gifts, that doesn't mean we're going to use them correctly. The gift of spiritual gifts and abilities from the divine giver does not. Amputate our free will from us. It doesn't disable our evil inclination. These spiritual gifts are like Abraham's covenant, they are divine promises. How we use those gifts are like the Mosaic covenant there are conditions and choices that remain largely in our hands. We can choose righteously or wickedly. We can choose to use our God-given gifts for His purposes or for our purposes. And verses 11-14 through 14 gives us a number of disciplines in which Shlomo excelled as a writer of wisdom statements, what we call proverbs, as a composer of inspirational poems and songs, as a botanist, as a biologist, and as a politician and a a leader. Well, from this point forward, now that Israel enjoyed prosperity and wealth and power never attained before or since, the most important work of his reign was now ready to be addressed. This was the building of a house unto the name of Jehovah. And what these first verses starting at verse 15 tell us is that surprisingly the Gentile nations are going to play a willing and pivotal role in the building of the temple. And the most prominent name among those Gentiles is Hiram, king of Zor. Now, as happens so often in the Bible, the same people or, or nation goes by several names, and the mention of Zor is one of those instances. Zor, Sidon, and Phoenicia are all speaking of the same nation and same people. We're told that Hiram loved David and we need to be careful how we take the term love in this context and not think of it as meaning deep affection or some sort of intense emotional attachment. When you have love Between political leaders, it's a political term. It's meant in the sense of loyalty and alliance. So Hiram was politically loyal to David and Israel and Zor had an uncommonly good and peaceful relationship with David that Hiram wished to extend to Solomon. And Solomon, the diplomat, were certainly happy to accept it and reciprocate. So Hiram sent his ambassadors to Shlomo and Shlomo sent a letter back with them that respectfully asked the king of Zor to help Solomon build the temple. And we get an interesting piece of information that apparently David had shared with Hiram his great desire to build a house for God, and he even discussed the actual blueprints and plans he'd developed, even going so far as to assemble some materials. Listen to 1 Chronicles 22.1 in this parallel account. Then David said, This is the house of Adonai God and this is the altar Israel is to use for burnt offerings. David ordered that the foreigners in the land of Israel should be assembled and he appointed stone workers to shape stones for building the house of God. David prepared a large store of iron from which to make nails and clamps for the gateway doors and a quantity of bronze too great to weigh and cedar logs Beyond numbering, because the Zitonim and the people from Zor brought cedar logs in abundance to David. David said, Shlomo my son is young and inexperienced. While the house to be built for Adonai must be so magnificent and splendid that its fame and glory will be known in every country so I will make preparations for him. Therefore, David made extensive preparations before his death. There it is. But as Solomon's message reported to Hiram, David never did build the temple because of the wars that had beset him on every side. But that's only partially true. Because as this section of Chronicles moves on into verse 8, God tells David that you have shed much blood and fought great wars. You are not to build a house for my name because you have shed so much blood blood on the earth in my sight. Oh, David had shed blood in fighting wars. Just blood, but also unjust blood in killing Bathsheba's husband and other rivals. So the Lord determined that David would not get the honor of building a house for God, but his son would. And that son turned out to be Solomon. Therefore, the message from Solomon to Hiram continues that Solomon requests that Hiram have his people harvest timber from the cedar trees on his land, and part of that land includes Lebanon. But what we know from First Chronicles is that Israel already had some of the lumber they needed because David had stockpiled it. Note that the lumber is not a gift and it's not tribute. Solomon made it clear he'd pay for it. In fact, Solomon would send laborers up to Lebanon to assist Hiram's workers. But Hiram's men would be in charge because they were expert at selecting and felling these large trees. Now King Hiram's pleased to hear of Solomon's intent to build a temple, and he compliments him for it. Notice the Bible has Hiram saying, "Blessed be Adonai today." It actually says, "Blessed be Yehovah today." that Hiram used Jehovah's name in no way means that Hiram worshiped the God of Israel. It's simply that he respects Israel's God and Israel's worship of him. And you know, while the situation is not identical, it is similar, I think this example with Hiram offers Christians a good illustration of how to relate to modern day Israel and to the Jewish people. While we don't agree with their stance regarding Messiah, Yeshua, we can certainly agree that both Christianity and Judaism worship the God of Israel, Jehovah. And we share strong faith roots and values. And as a result, we can show them respect and loyalty at the very least. The unfortunate attitude among too many believers of denouncing Israel and thus often siding with their enemies on account of Israel's regrettable stance against Jews accepting Yeshua, this is wrong minded. We ought to be the Jewish people's greatest and most faithful friends if for no other reason than enlightened self-interest because the Bible makes it clear in both the Old and the New Testaments that those who befriend Israel shall be blessed and those who come against Israel shall be dealt with harshly by God. Well, the cedar forests of Lebanon where this precious commodity of large trees were located, was about two days' journey north of Beirut. And it was a long way from there to Jerusalem. Great skill was needed, not only to harvest the trees, but to select exactly the right ones. But even more, there was much know-how needed to transport those large logs all that distance. And they had an ingenious way of doing it. They took the logs to the Mediterranean seashore and they made rafts out of them. Huge rafts, which they sailed down the coast to Israel. More than likely, the Israeli port they used in that area era was Yafo, Jaffa, Jaffa. And upon arrival they had then disassemble these rafts thus separating the logs and then transport them by ox cart to Jerusalem. Now Hiram agreed to do all of this. No doubt it was to a large degree prearranged by David and essentially Solomon merely had to say the word to set all this plan into motion. And he also told Solomon that the price of for his participation would be the provision of food for his entire royal household, meaning the government of Sore, of Phoenicia. And verse 25 records that Solomon agreed to provide 100,000 bushels of wheat and 1,000 gallons of olive oil to Hiram each and every year that Hiram was providing the wood. Now that's a lot of food even though we're not really sure of exactly the amount because although most Bibles will say bushels and gallons or perhaps measures, the Hebrew word is kor, K-O-R, kor, in both instances. And what the original Hebrew says is that the amounts paid are esrim aleph kor, esrim aleph kor, core of wheat and asrim core of olive oil which translates to 20,000 core of wheat and 20 core of olive oil but of course the question is how much is a core? and it's a bit hazy because a core is technically a unit of dry measurement and here it's used for both a dry measure, wheat, and a liquid measure, oil. Here's the thing. Essentially, a core is the largest unit of dry measurement in the Hebrew vocabulary. In the same way that eleph 1000, is the largest n- number unit in the Hebrew vocabulary. And a core is really only an approximate amount. It's not an exact weight or measure. And it's defined as the maximum amount of whatever the product might be that a donkey can carry fully loaded down. That's a core. So another term we could use for core is a donkey load. (laughs) The Solomon was to pay Hiram 20,000 donkey loads of wheat and 20 donkey loads of olive oil per year. So that's why you see all these different measurements in your Bible. The stuff you learn in here, huh? Well, at verse 27, we get a troubling report that Solomon conscripted 30,000 men from Israel to send to Lebanon to help cut and transport the cedar trees in 10,000 man rotations of one month stay. Now I say troubling, because like the many horses Solomon had amassed, in ordering his people into forced labor, Solomon was behaving like a typical pagan Gentile despot And monarch, and not like the godly shepherd that he was supposed to be. In a certain sense, these and other similar actions of Solomon were a fulfillment of a prophetic warning by the prophet Samuel, as recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, that is going to be on page 305. five. <coughs> First Samuel chapter 8. And we're going to read 10 through 18. They are doing to you exactly what they have been doing to me from the day I brought them out of Egypt until today by abandoning me and serving other gods. So do what they say, but give them a sober warning telling them what kinds of rulings their king is going to make. Shmuel reported everything Adonai had said to the people asking him for a king and he said, Here are the kinds of rulings your king will make he'll draft your sons and assign them to take care of his chariots be his horsemen his bodyguards running ahead of his chariots he'll appoint them to serve him as officers in charge of of a thousand or of 50 plowing his fields gathering his harvest making his weapons and the weapons for his chariots he'll take your daughters and have them be perfume makers, cooks and bakers. He'll appropriate your fields and vineyards and olive groves, the very best of them, and hand them over to His servants. He'll take 10% tax of your crops and vineyards. He'll give it... Oops, my pages are stuck together here. He'll give it to His officers and servants. He will take your female, male and female servants, your best young men your donkeys, and make them work for him. He will take the 10% tax of your flocks. You will become his servants. And when that happens, you will cry out on account of your king, whom you yourselves chose. But when that happens, Adonai will not answer you. But these commands from Solomon were just the beginning. In order to query stones for the temple, Solomon enlisted 150,000 men to cut stones and carry those stones. 70,000 were used to transport the loads, 80,000 were stone cutters and then Solomon set over them 3300 supervisors. We get a little more detail about this in 2nd Chronicles. Um, don't turn there, but 2nd Chronicles 2:16 through 17 says, "Shlomo took a census of all the foreigners in the land of Israel following the pattern of the census of David his father and they were found they were found to number 153,600. He appointed 70,000 of them to carry loads." 80,000 to be stone cutters in the hills and 3,600 as supervisors to assign the people their work. Now some explanation is needed here in determining exactly who these 153,600 were who were counted in this special census. You see, the term that's translated as foreigner in our complete Jewish Bibles is translated in, in a number of ways in other Bibles using terms such as aliens, strangers, men, sojourners, a few other terms as well. Now, the variety of English terms is because the Hebrew word being translated is Enosh HaGarim and it literally means mankind of the Gentiles. Now if this were the only factor we could simply say that these were resident alien Gentiles living in Israel. But in the next verse it says that overseers were set over these Am, And the term Am, which is usually translated in our Bibles as people is actually referring to kindred people meaning in this case, kindred to Israel. So these people were considered part of Israel. The bottom line is that some of the modern translators have started to use the English word proselytes. And I think they've nailed it. These people were Gentiles who came to live among Israel. And who gave their allegiance to Israel and to Israel's God, but who tended to live within their own ethnic groups, has been, and this sort of thing has been common among foreign immigrants since time immemorial, right on up till today. No doubt they were somewhat recent to Israel, and since they weren't natural born Hebrews and hadn't sought to, enter into full assimilation into Hebrew culture, it was a lot less of a political problem for Solomon to conscript them to this hard and unpleasant labor instead of natural-born Hebrews because they were ethnically different than the rest of the Israelis. Nonetheless, no doubt, these 150,000 men used to quarry the stones for the temple were former Gentiles who were now official Israelis by their own choice. That's who they were. Now, the ending verses of chapter 5 make it clear that even the foundation stones of the temple were cut, quarried, and shaped. That is, they weren't slightly modified Boulders that would be used as the foundation that was more typical in that era. Cut stones were usually used where they were the most visible. Foundation stones were, of course, underground. We get an interesting note that the men from Zor worked with men from Israel to get this job done and also. It included a group of men from a place called Geval. These were pressed into action. Geval is also known as Biblos, which is north of Beirut. Let's get started a little bit into chapter 6. Turn your Bibles to chapter 6 of uh, 1 Kings. It was in the 480th year after the people of Israel had left the land of Egypt in the fourth year of Slomo's reign over Israel in the month of Ziv in which, uh, which is in the second month that he began to build the house for Adonai. The house which King Slomo built for Adonai was 105 feet long, 35 feet wide and 52 and a half feet high. The hall fronting the temple of the house was 35 feet long the same as the width of the house itself so that it's 17 and foot width extended frontward from the house. The windows he made for the house were wide on the inside narrow on the outside and against the wall of the house he built an annex all the way around. He went all the way around the walls of the house including both the temple and the sanctuary. I'm going to stop there. It was the fourth year of Shlomo's reign that, cons- that the construction of the temple began. Now there is great disagreement because there's really no way to know for sure what constituted the beginning of the construction. I mean, because was it the ordering of materials from Hiram? Was it the arrival of the first foundation stones? Was it when the foundation was completed? We don't know the criteria, Criteria. so I'm not about to add to the already long list of guesses about this. Even the meaning, and this is what we're going to end with today, even the meaning of the fourth year of Solomon's reign isn't precise because the ancients had varying ways of specifying a king's reign. Now, because many Bible students and other Christians get all bound up in biblical chronology and and calendar debates, not only accusing one another, but even sometimes accusing the scriptures of being an error about some of these matters, I'm going to take us on a, a brief detour to end today to discuss this issue of measuring the time of a king's reign. Now this is because the time of a king's reign had much to do with setting historical time markers in ancient days. And thus, biblical chronology and the variant chronologies that we use today depended on the dates that certain kings were in office. And in a nutshell, the issue is that the method that a king's reign was measured changed with time. And it changed within the culture he lived and within the culture that reported that king's reign. In other words, the Bible not only talks about Hebrew kings, but it talks about foreign kings sometimes as well. And we have also developed some of our biblical chronology from extra-biblical, in other words, non-biblical, documents, because the Bible at times doesn't give us the needed information, but some ancient documents from other nations and cultures do. But the question then becomes what time method did that culture use to determine a king's reign? Well, briefly very briefly, there are five different protocols used in antiquity and no doubt in the Bible to define the chronology of a monarch. Five. They are called the regnal year, the accession year, the post-dating system, the non-accession year, and the co-regency. And you wondered why all this was confusing. The first method it's called regnal year. This was when the official royal year began at the start of the previous new year. For the Hebrews, the new year was usually considered as Nisan, the month of Nisan. This was the same as it was, by the way, up in Mesopotamia. But it gets more complicated because it seems that after Solomon, the northern kingdom of Israel used the month of Tishri, the seventh month as their month of New Year, while the southern kingdom of Judah used the month of Nisan, the first month as their month of New Year. And it's reported that way in the Bible. Then next you have the accession year. This determines that the king's first year takes place in whatever time there is between the actual date of his coronation and the new year. So a king could take the throne one week before new year and upon the new year he's entering his second year of reign. His first year of reign could have been a matter of a couple of days. Okay. the third method is called the post dating system this system counts a king's first full year as the uh, first year as the first full year after the coming new years therefore a king could assume the throne months before new years and none of that's counted towards his period of reign only after passing that first new year is that considered the beginning of his first year of his reign so he could be on the throne for 11 months none of that would count because the clock doesn't start until that first new year then there's what they call the non-accession year this month pays no atten- I mean this method pays no attention to new years but only to the actual date that the king assumes the office so one year from his actual date of coronation, ends his first year and begins the second year and so on. It's more logically like we'd think of it. Fifth is called co-regency. This refers to the designation of the royal heir during the lifetime of the still-sitting king. Thus, as with Solomon and David, David was still living and still king when he named Solomon as the royal heir and within hours Solomon assumed the throne. But it appears that David did not give up the throne. Rather there was sort of a senior king and junior king all operating at the same time. So the end of David's time as king does not coincide with Solomon becoming king. See that? Instead, David's time ends at David's death. So Solomon becoming king overlaps with David remaining king. Five different ways we have. Now, there is nothing right nor wrong or better or worse among these various systems. Often the choice of the dating system seemed to be at the whim of the king himself. Or, It changed according to circumstance for one king and then his successor was measured in a whole different way. Even more, it appears that the writer or the editor of the book did the choosing how he wanted to report it. And frankly, we only rarely even know which of these methods they used because it's not usually recorded. The bottom line is all these nice, neat, biblical timelines we see printed out in those beautiful color foldouts <laughs> about the various kings of Israel and Judah or about judges or generally about any other succession of national or regional leaders aren't absolute. They're just approximates. And so we're going to see significant variations among them. Okay. Next week, we'll delve extensively into one of the most important and seminal events in the entire Bible. The building of the first temple to Jehovah.